Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Can you tell our listeners about our guest today? With pleasure. Um, today we're being joined by the fantastic British author and psychiatric doctor, Joanna Cannon, who we first introduced to at our Faber social event a few months ago. Um, her debut novel, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, is fantastic, and it's about two girls who decide to investigate a housewife's disappearance from their tight-knit es- estate during the heat wave of 1976 in Britain. Um, and it was a Sunday Times bestseller this year and has done really, really well. Yeah, and it's a fabulous book too. Um, the Trouble with Goats and Sheep is about the fingers we're quick to point at anyone who doesn't fit in. And so our theme today is black sheep in literature. After our interview with Joanna, we'll be discussing our favorite literary characters who stand on the margins, from Holden Caulfield to Jane Eyre to Oscar Wilde, and why outsiders crop up so often in literature. Plus, there are all the usual book recommendations, so please stay tuned to Literary Friction. Joanna Cannon, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set it up for us, please? I certainly can. Um, The reading is from my book, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. And uh, the story has a a narrator, a 10-year-old narrator called Grace, and she has a best friend called Tilly. And this is a little bit where Grace is telling you how she first met her best friend, Tilly. I have known Tilly Albert for a fifth of my life. She arrived two summers ago in the back of a large white van, and they unloaded her along with a sideboard and three easy chairs. I watched from Mrs Morton's kitchen whilst I ate a cheese scone and listened to a weather forecast for the Norfolk Broads. We didn't live on the Norfolk Broads, but Mrs Morton had been there on holiday, and she liked to keep in touch. Mrs Morton was sitting with me. Will you just sit with Grace while I have a little lie down, my mother would say. Although Mrs Morton didn't sit very much at all. She dusted and baked and looked through windows instead. My mother spent most of 1974 having a little lie down, And so I sat with Mrs Morton quite a lot. I stared at the white van. Who's that then, I said, through a mouthful of scone. Mrs Morton pressed on the lace curtain, which hung halfway down the window on a piece of wire. It dipped in the middle, exhausted from all the pressing. That'll be the new lot, she said. Who are the new lot? I don't know, she dipped the lace down a little further. But I don't see a man, do you? I peered over the lace. There were two men, but they wore overalls and were busy. The girl who had appeared from the back of the van continued to stand on the pavement. She was small and round and very pale, like a giant white pebble, and was buttoned into a raincoat right up to her neck, even though we hadn't had rain for three weeks. She pulled her face as though she were about to cry, and then leant forward and was sick all over her shoes, Disgusting, I said, and took another scone. By four o'clock, she was next to me at the kitchen table. I fetched her over because she sat on the wall outside her house, looking as though she'd been misplaced. Mrs Morton got the dandelion and burdock out and a new packet of penguins. I didn't know then that Tilly didn't like eating in front of people, and she held onto the bar of chocolate until it leaked between her fingers. Mrs Morton spat on a tissue and wiped Tilly's hands even though there was a tap three feet away. Tilly bit her lip and looked out of the window. Who are you looking for, I said. My mother. Tilly turned back and stared at Mrs Morton, who was spitting again. I just want to check she's not watching. You're not looking for your father, said Mrs Morton, who was nothing if not an opportunist. 
I wouldn't know where to look. Tilly wiped her hands very discreetly on her skirt. I think he lives in Bristol. Bristol? Mrs Morton put the tissue back into her cardigan sleeve. I have a cousin who lives in Bristol. Actually, I think it might be Bournemouth, said Tilly. Oh, Mrs Morton frowned. I don't know anyone who lives there. No, Tilly said. Neither do I. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I think that passage is a great introduction to the book because, first of all, you get the, the, a real sense of Grace's voice, which is this sort of knowing 10-year-old. Um, I love that, that bit when she says disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Grace. But also um, you get a sense of this very close-knit um, estate where everyone is sort of watching each other and making judgments about each other. Yeah. Um, and you see Miss Morton from from the very second that Tilly arrives, trying to suss out who she is and how she's different. Um, and I, I, that's one of the things that I really loved about this book was was how you brought that out. So um, I wanted to start by asking: You've said that you wanted to write this book in part to give a voice to people who live on the periphery of life. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by this? And how how did you decide you would actually do this? Um. I think because the story is about, as you say, it's a very close-knit estate and everyone in the estate knows everybody else and they're all very seemingly upright and respectable. But within that community, there's one person who doesn't fit in, um, who's a chap called Walter Bishop, who lives at number 11. And Walter Bishop was important to me and I wanted to write about him because um, when I'm not writing about goats and sheep, I work as a psychiatrist. And I meet a lot of people like Walter Bishop, people who don't really fit into the community, who are kind of pushed to the periphery. And they all have a narrative. Um, they didn't just arrive there on day one. They all became that person for a reason. And all the people that I look after in psychiatry all have a story to tell. Um, and we don't really hear these stories. We accept these people, this kind of silent herd of unbelongers that live on the outside of our communities. And we don't really know how they came to be there. So it was important for me to write this story because I wanted to explore a little more about why these people end up being so excluded. Yeah, and one of the things <clears throat> that really struck me is that, as you say, there's Walter Bishop who sticks out like a sore thumb from the very beginning. But actually, as you take us behind the door of all of the different houses, we discover that everyone is a bit of a mess or, well, that's or right, yeah. unusual, right, <laughs> in their own way. Um, it made me think of lots of things. It made me think a bit of Dylan Thomas under Milkwood, where it's, again, you're weaving in and out of the minds and psyches of people in a really close-knit community. Um, it made me think of Pedro Almodovar's films as well, especially Brian and his mother, his overbearing mother eating all the chocolate and kind yeah. of... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, th I thought it was brilliant. And, and I really liked the way that you bring out the fact that human nature is so multifaceted and complex and we're all more than we seem. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, was it your intention to show that it, it really no one is straightforward when it comes to mental health. Absolutely. I mean, where I work on a, or the last job I did was on a um, high security mental health ward. So it was a locked ward and all the patients were sectioned. Um, and nobody expects to wake up on a mental health ward. Um, it's um, something that happens to anybody. It can happen to you, it can happen to me. Um, there's a very fine line between the consultation room, between me on one side and the patient on the other. And I genuinely believe that we all have quirks of behaviour and reasons for not belonging, but we're just very good at hiding it. So the only difference really between us and Walter Bishop is the ability to hide it. Walter's only got one version of himself to present to society, 
Um, whereas we, as a kind of duplicity with people, normally we can present different versions depending on where we are. But the patients I look after and the character in the book only have one version, and that might not be a version that society is willing to accept. And it's not very easy being in a, a sheep's world and being a goat. Um, and that's what I wanted to explore in the story. So that's how I started writing it, to answer your question, Carrie. Um, I went about writing it by thinking, let's have an ordinary community in a kind of familiar estate that's not really geographically determined, that could be any road that any of us live on, because we've all got a Walter Bishop in our lives. Um, and let's just have a see what's behind all those doors. Walter, you're talking about mental illness here, um, and, and Walter obviously is a little different. Were, was it difficult to you to decide how he would be different and how you're going to portray that? Because I imagine, especially as someone who works with patients every day, you want to be quite sensitive to yeah. how people are portrayed, and I don't know if you wanted to diagnose him or leave that open. What, what were your thoughts um, around that? Well, I think if you want to diagnose most people on that avenue, you can probably give a label to each of their problems. There's somebody on there with a kind of an OCD. Um, there's somebody on there with an alcohol problem. Walter himself seems to have some kind of Asperger's slash autism, possibly. But I wanted to keep it open because I think, as a society, we like to pigeonhole things and name things and give things a label because it makes us feel more in control. But, for example, if you found 10 patients with schizophrenia, they're all so different that you wonder if it's the same disease. Um, so I didn't really want to diagnose anybody, but I wanted to kind of open the story up so that anybody reading it could say, actually, I know somebody who's like that, or I feel a bit like that sometimes, so that we can all identify with the people on the avenue, yeah. And actually, having the story told largely through Grace's eyes really helps with that, right? Because she has this child's perspective. So she's not diagnosing anybody, right? She's kind of dealing with them at face value. Yeah. Um, and was that was that a sort of deliberate decision to have this childlike view? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted a narrator who didn't see the world with a filter because we all see the world with a filter. And I didn't want a narrator who had an agenda because there are so many agendas on that avenue that I needed somebody to tell the story who didn't have one. And so a child was the logical choice. Um, but I also wanted to be unreliable. Um, because I love unreliable narrators. As a reader, I love unreliable narrators. So Grace was a perfect choice. And the minute I decided I was going to give her the story to tell, she was chatting away in my head, which sounds vaguely psychotic. Um, but I do know she doesn't exist. But that's, that's how I knew. I think as soon as I heard that voice, I knew, OK, I can hear that voice now. This is the voice that's going to tell the story. Yeah, and the brilliant thing about Grace is that you hear her parroting the kind of adult opinions around her. So she sort of absorbs a lot of the energy of the street and then when you hear it coming out of a child's mouth it shows it how absurd it is mm. or you know all of that yeah. I actually I wanted to ask you about Tilly as well because I think she's such an enigmatic character of course there's a team Tilly going on on oh, Twitter I'm actually sure. everybody loves Tilly yeah Tilly's fab <laughs> because she because she's uh I don't know she, Grace has that kind of um that forthright that young children can have and Tilly seems to be almost this kind of wise sage mm. but Grace discounts her constantly um, and I wanted to ask you if Tilly I don't know is there a Tilly in your life did you have a friendship like that because it seemed so heartfelt to me the relationship between oh, the two thank girls you. I think um, there's a little bit of Grace and a little bit of Tilly in me and I probably there is in all of us I like to think I was more Tilly as I got older and wiser but you'd have to ask somebody who knew me um, I knew that I wanted to tell a story about things not seeming as they are. And with the friendship between Grace and Tilly, Grace thinks she's the wise one. She thinks she knows everything. But it's actually Tilly that sees things that are important and interprets them more accurately. 
um, but she's very quiet. So it's Grace that you hear because she's very shouty and she's giving out her opinion to everybody. But actually, it's Tilly's the one who is the leader in the friendship, really, if you, if you get down to it. So I wanted that friendship to reflect the, um, the fact that things aren't always as they first appear. Mm. And I'm very interested in Grace because she does some quite... I don't want to say despicable things, but her hands no, are not clean, um, especially in regards to her relationship with Tilly, who mm. really is um, never does anything wrong mm. to Grace. And yet Grace constantly shuts her down, um, pushes her out. Yeah. I was wondering if you think because this is a story about everyone having secrets to hide and, and nobody really having a clean slate as such, do you think that children are less culpable um, because they're still children. Do you think there's innocence to be lost at some point? Or is it just something that we have throughout our whole lives? That there's there's a bit of, I don't want to say badness in us, but how, how bad is Grace in comparison to the adults in her life? Um, I think you can forgive Grace because she's so young. Um, there is a culpability when you start to get older and you get awareness. But I think the reason I, I made Grace, Grace um, 10 years old, Grace until 10 years old, is because that's the age when we first start noticing other people around us and we start comparing ourselves to other people and we start making slight changes in our behaviour to try and be accepted. Um, and in the story, Grace is desperate to be accepted by this really cool gang of girls that wear denim jackets and market boots and chew gum and she wants to be one of those girls. And the story shows you the length that she will go to to be accepted by them. Um, and I think there is a culpability, but I think you also have to remember that that's the age when we first start wanting to belong, when this idea of unbelonging and belonging first begins. Um, so I think we can't really blame Grace, but I think by the end of the story, she does realise that she's been um, quite bad to Tilly, and she realises the mistakes and the fact that you're better off with a friendship that's genuine than trying to make friends with girls that um, perhaps haven't got the the right attitude for you that aren't the people that you want to be with that, that you belong with kind of thing yeah it that that whole put the whole part of the book that I, I don't know gave me goosebumps because I think we've all done that mm. as kids haven't yeah. we you know <clears throat> um and actually I uh, when I finished the book and I read it kind of in one sitting um oh which was really enjoyable <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love being able to sink in like that you know to a story and especially one yeah. where there are so many um very real characters and one of the things that really strikes me is how you have the generations and all together like that and there's a very clear uh, articulation of kind of parenthood and childhood and how they relate to one another yeah um, and I just kept thinking of that Philip Larkin poem you know this be the verse they fuck you up your mum and dad they may not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you <laughs> um, because uh a lot of kind of that that a lot of your adult characters in some ways don't seem more mature than grace yeah. in their yeah. the way that they think about things yeah um yeah i just that's not even a question i just it's an observation it. <laughs> yeah. well it is because i mean sheila sheila dakin who is the um character lives at number 14 who drinks a lot she's got a daughter called lisa and lisa is the girl that grace really wants to be friends with because she's a little bit older and all lisa does is mimic her mother so the fact that Sheila hates Walter Bishop and she, she kind of wants him out of there and Lisa is mimicking that and you pass on these myths through your family to your children or your grandchildren that there's this template that you pass on 
and it's a very fixed template and it's very, very difficult to break. So I did want to show that in the book, you're right, that, that we do follow our parents. And one of the characters says, at one point, we all copy our mums and dads. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's a valid point, yeah. I've actually never really agreed with that poem. <laughs> I think mom and dads are trying really hard. I guess they don't mean to, but I, don't, I think it's too mean. <laughs> I think that's because you had a, a very happy childhood. <laughs> Carrie's just choking in the moment. Sorry, I'm having a coughing fit. Maybe that's God coming down to judge me. Speaking of God. Yes. Um, the Trouble with Goats and Sheep is uh, based on this religious parable that um, Tilly and Grace hear at church about... Um, Jesus separating the goats from the sheep yeah. and that the sheep are the good people that helped him and the goats are the bad people. It's a very simple metaphor and they kind of take this into their lives. Um, and the book is really infused with religion, actually. I think mm. it's, it's a skeptical infusion, but mm. um, it's certainly a template with which Grace and Tilly work and with which the book works as well. And I was wondering, um, first of all, I'm, I'm just interested to know if you have a religious background because um, that seems to be relevant here. And also, why did you want that to be such a present element in this particular story? I don't have a religious background at all, to be honest. Um, absolutely none whatsoever. Um, I think because I didn't have any... When I first started writing, I didn't have any desire to write about religion. Um, and I don't want people to think it's a preachy book that's full of religious stuff because it isn't. I wanted to write about a community. And I thought, what brings a community together? Um, what positive things can a community do? Um, and religion, whether you're religious or not, is obviously something that really does bring a community together. And so that was something I wanted to explore. And then I was trying to think of people through history who have been persecuted for being different. And I was thinking about Chris Jeffries, who was the Bristol landlord who was um, taken for questioning over the murder of Joe Yates and how the media treated him. And I was also thinking about Janet Frame, the New Zealand writer who had schizophrenia and how she was treated. And I thought, I can't think of any more examples. And I went on Facebook, as you do, and I said to my friends, can anybody think of anybody through history that's been persecuted for being different? And one of the psychiatric nurses I work for said, well, actually, how about Jesus? And I went, oh, bingo. You know what I mean? That all ties in with everything. And then I thought, well, I've got to have something happen in the book that symbolizes religion and the community coming together because obviously a community can come together for very negative reasons in the way they treat Walter Bishop but I also wanted to show the positive power of community so I needed something to happen on that avenue um, which brought them together and I thought about all these incidences where you see the face of Christ in an avocado and things like that and I thought why can't we have something like that but I needed something outside so they could all kind of gather and I found that in 1992, I think it was, in Coventry, the face of Christ appeared on a drain pipe. And I thought, there we go, that's it. Drainpipe Jesus. Um, and actually, in the, in the newspaper report that I read, one of the residents on this road said, um, oh, my goodness, I hope we don't get pilgrims. They'll make such a mess. And I thought, that's perfect. How can you not use that line? So that was given to Dorothy Forbes, of course. Um, but there is a lot of religion in there, from the title to the name of Grace, to Angel Delight, to Walter Bishop. So there's all kind of little nuggets of religious um, references in there. But it's really all about how we come together as a community and what brings us together for the good. Um, and whether it's Jesus Christ on the drain pipe, whether it's Brian Clough, it doesn't really matter because it brings us all together in the end. I mean, would you say more than, I, I suppose not more than, but instead of religion, you could sort of 
it's it's about morality for me anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. It has quite a strong, not a moral message in terms of it's not a preachy book in any way, but just it's calling our attention to you know how to be responsible for our behaviour. I suppose. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, without giving too much away, but you know the terrible misconception of dear old Walter Bishop mm. um, and the way that that our understanding of that builds as the book carries on. Yeah. It's a very powerful message actually of yeah. kind of. The, the pitfalls of thinking you know everything, right? Well, yeah, and making snap judgments and decisions about people on very strange criteria because it always fascinates me how we make these decisions, whether somebody's going to be accepted or not. And in the case of Chris Jeffries, for example, his hair was a little bit long, his glasses were a bit thick. He chose to live a certain lifestyle, which was entirely up to him. But because of that, we all judged him, me included, and he was on the front page of the newspaper. And we all went, oh, God, yeah, he killed her. He looks just the type. When, in fact, it was an, a sheep that had killed Joe Yates. It was an upstanding member of the community. Um, so it is about morality, and it's about how things aren't always as they seem, um, which also ties in with the thing on the drain pipe. Um, and it's about standing and staring, and as my dad used to say, the first thing anything needs is a really good coat of looking at. And it was an idea that we all everything needs a coat of looking at, a coat of thinking about, before we make a decision on it. Do you think of it as... Do you think if the book is having a moral message, um, you, would you want people to to be instructed? Maybe instructed isn't the right word, but there is a sense, as Octavia was pointing out, that there's sort of a lesson to be learned here. Yeah. I think One that most people would agree with. Well, yeah, I think so. And I think, um, I think if you set out to write a book with a message, um, you will probably fail at some point because um, just giving a message out is going to be quite tedious to a reader. But I think the best books I've read, the books that have really affected me, have been books that changed my mind about something from the first page to the last. Um, so Nathan Fyler's Shock of the Fall, for example, or John Boyne's History of Loneliness. They might have changed in my mind, but they made me really think about something. And that <coughs> was what I set out to do, was to, um, was to make people think a little more deeply. So maybe not instruct them, because that sounds a little bit bossy. Um, <laughs> but just make, make uh, this is my idea of things, what do you think, kind of thing. That, that's what I set out to do. I wanted to ask you about the book as a kind of 70s set piece. Because um, my mother read it as well, and oh, she yeah. said she remembers that summer. And she remembers all the details about it, because it was this hot heat wave, mm. you know, and it affected everybody in, in a really potent way. Yeah. And obviously, I wasn't born at that point so it was really interesting to hear because it's the heat is such a strong presence throughout the book um and my mum was like yeah it was like that you know it was relentless and mm. unavoidable and it did change people's behavior well it did yeah and yeah, uh, and she told me some very funny stories that i won't repeat right now <laughs> but um <laughs> about you know local community people in her local community yeah. going a bit doolally and and things we're very very vulnerable to the environment i think um, I mean, where I live is a very small market town and people don't really speak to each other. But if it snows and there's three feet of snow outside, everybody starts speaking to each other and talking about what roads are closed and helping each other out and digging each other's drives. And, and it's the same with the heat. It really brings us with a common purpose and it proves that the community is there. It just needs an excuse to come out. And that, like you say, when you said about talking to your mum, whenever I mentioned when my book was set, when I was writing it, people are like, oh my God, I remember that summer. And they've all got these anecdotes. So I didn't have to do any Googling or research because everybody's giving me these brilliant anecdotes um, about what the summer was like. 
And also it acted as a catalyst on the avenue in the story because everybody appears very respectable and upright, but the greatest catalyst of all is heat. So it, it breaks people down and they start, um, they start, as you say, going a bit doolally. <laughs> I love this idea of you crowdsourcing your novel. Yes, I, know, <laughs> I think I, know. I think probably all novelists do that, but it's brilliant <laughs> that you Facebook just go on and ask Facebook. questions. I know, I know. There's my there's my secrets around now. My research secrets. <laughs> um, and the seventies, very interestingly. I mean, I'm an American, and I think the American idea of the experience of the seventies is, is quite different, actually, from the British idea. Mm. Um, but living in London now, the seventies seems to be weirdly on trend. I don't well, know. If it is, isn't it? I, I went know. to a '70s style restaurant the other night, oh which, wow. as my friends will know, I have been complaining about <laughs> ever since. It's just bad food. Nobody wants to eat that. Um, they didn't give you cheese and pineapple on sticks. They did. Oh, did they? Oh okay. my god. They I had love that. chicken Kiev <laughs> and okay. um, I don't know, just cheese and cauliflower. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Or whatever it's called. I don't know. Um, but I, I wonder if what, what you think about this fascination with it. I, I, I kind of wonder if it has something to do with the unironic tackiness of it all, that it seems to point to a sort of cultural like silliness and earnestness that couldn't exist now. But yeah. you might have other thoughts. No, I think it's... I mean, people have said the book reminds them, obviously not the dark players, but the, the characters remind them of a 1976 sitcom. You know, this kind of carry-on film, these exaggerated characters. And I think that's what we think about when we look back on the 70s. It's all very exaggerated. The fashion, the food, the behaviour, the things that were on television that you think, oh, my God, how could we ever watch that or say that or laugh about that? And I think it was the last decade when we could get away with those kind of things without somebody pulling us up and saying, actually, you know, that's not right. That's not how we should be behaving. Um, and also it was a really... Um, chaotic decade in the UK. It was the three-day week, it was the strikes, it was all these different prime ministers. And then in the middle of all that chaos, there was this long, hot, endless summer um, that made communities come together. And it was a time when communities were changing. And the dynamic was changing and people were coming in from different countries as they are now. And that reflects the, some of the attitudes that you read about in my book with the the things people say to new families that arrive are things that are being said to people now. Nothing has changed. Um, so I think the 70s, I mean, there have been worse droughts since before. There have been very cold spells, but that's the extreme weather, remember. And I think it's because it was in that decade when it was so um, chaotic and it was almost anarchy here. And then you have this, this strange pause um, that everybody had to pull together. And I think that's why we remember it so much better than the others. Um, but yeah, it is very kind of sitcomish, kind of caricaturish. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. The chintz was kind of coming off the page yeah, for yeah. me. Before <laughs> I say anything else, though, Carrie, I'm going to correct you and say chicken kids can be absolutely delightful <laughs> if you have the right one. Well, I'm vegetarian, so I couldn't, I couldn't possibly comment on chicken kids, but I do like cheese and pineapple on steaks. I have to say, me too, and also on pizza. <laughs> You're all deluded. <laughs> You're all deluded. It's bad. Oh, God. But you can tell in the book when I was hungry because <laughs> there are all these references to biscuits and chocolate and angels Custard creams. Custard creams. I mean, they're my favourite biscuits. And so. I was so hungry. So if you read a paragraph and you think there's a lot of food in that paragraph, it's because I was hungry. <laughs> That's fantastic. Feed yourself in your own literature. Yeah, with my own words. Um, yeah, this thing about uh, about the nation being on the cusp at that time of, mm. of rapid change. Obviously, in the book, that comes in when the, the first Indian family moved to the, the avenue, and yeah. you see that um, that kind of interaction between the very local and then the very 
far away. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I grew up in, in London in a very multicultural part of the city, um, very cosmopolitan, completely different to that that community in the avenue. Yeah. And um, so for me, even, there was a, a kind of fetishistic element to it that was like, God, this is so English, mm. you know, like yeah. so English yeah. in a way, not British, you know, not United Kingdom, but England. Just English. Yeah. 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 Um, that was a, a real, it was a pleasure. It was a kind of perverse pleasure to sink into it because mm. I recognized all of it, having never actually lived it myself. Yeah. But yeah. because that these figures are so, like you said, like the carry on, I mean, Sid James and Barbara Windsor and yeah. like the whole kind of shebang. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, you know, with your with your next work, are you are you interested in exploring another period in that kind of quite close way? Or, or I mean, does that really come into it, wanting to revisit particular times in in history? Um, I think you have to have a good reason for going back. I think sometimes I've read books where you don't seem to be there for any particular reason other than for the writer to put in product placement here and there. Do you know what I mean? I wanted there to be a reason for it being in the seventies. Um, and it fitted with the themes and the ideas and the fractured communities and the dynamics changing. So that all fitted into the drought. Um, my next book is contemporary because I believe now the 70s are classed as vintage, which pains me, unbelievably pains me, but there we go. Um, but yeah, it's contemporary. Um, but it's still got a, um, a reflection from the environment on the story without actually leaving 2014, 16. 15 or wherever it might be it's not um it's not it's not the story isn't reflected in the the decade but it's reflected in the weather and the environment that the story is set in at your launch you made a really amazing speech about small acts of kindness and i think you said that that was maybe going to be the theme of your next book it is the theme can, of book, can yeah. you expound upon Ooh, that um i think we all want to make an echo we want to leave an echo in the world and um, when Harper Lee died, my first reaction was, well, she left an echo. She left an amazing echo. We're going to read her words forever. Um, and we all want to leave an echo. And I think when we get to the end of our lives, sometimes we wonder how loud that echo might have been and what was the purpose. Why did we exist? What was the point of our lives? And I think sometimes a small act of kindness can make a huge difference. So we don't always know how big the echo is that we leave. So I wanted to write a story about that, about growing old and looking back on our lives and realising actually we made more of a distance, difference than we, than we think. Oh. And finally, I just want to come back to your day job, I think, as the, as the final question, because yeah. I think, uh, and, and you came to it quite late. Um, mm. You you left high school, I believe, with one O level. I did. Yeah. Um, did Just a the bunch papers of love telling everybody I about know. my mother's there with her head and hands, going, "Oh my God, what are people going to think of us?" Every yeah. single profile I've read of and you mentioned that. School at fifteen with one O level, and I think, "Oh God, can't we talk about something else?" No, but you're allowed to mention it. That's fine. Yes, well, I did leave school so, at fifteen. So yes, I've mentioned that. I've put it in a box yes, and so shipped it far yes. away. But um, <laughs> but you. So then you decided to um, go back to school yeah. and then go to medical school. Yeah. And I wonder, did did that have anything to... Did you ever think that that would be part of your writing life as well? Because this book is obviously a combination of both of those things in many ways. Um, but was that ever an idea in your mind? Or were those two very separate interests and ideas in your life that have just come together? They've just come together. Things have just happened organically, I think. Um, when I was 15, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I don't think many kids do, to be honest. I think they're made to make decisions very early on about what they want to do, and it's a little bit unfair. 
Um, and I never had any desire to write, not for other people to read. Anymore. I'd write my own kind of scribblings, but I wouldn't write anything for anybody else. Um, and then when I became a doctor, I uh, decided to start a blog because I was seeing a lot of very distressing things. And um, when I qualified, and I was obviously a lot older than everybody else in my cohort, the first job I was asked to do as a new doctor was to certify death. So my bleep went off on my first day, and I was like all proud, and answered my bleep, and said, can you come and certify this death? And I thought, well, okay, because I've been taught at medical school how to do it, and what you had to do, and writing in the notes, and the death certificate, and everything. But it doesn't prepare you for the emotional impact of coming into a room at the end of somebody's life with relatives. And, and I think I referenced my own family and deaths in my own family, which I think of being older, it was more difficult for me to brush off because I'd seen it you know, personally. Um, and so I started this blog, but I never for one second thought it would ever lead to a novel. I never thought I'd ever end up on the Sunday Times bestsellers list. I mean, whoever thinks that. Woo-hoo. Do you know what I mean? You just don't. And it was, it was a story that I just wrote for my own entertainment because I started the blog and people said, oh, write a book. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll write a book. But it's like watching Wimbledon when you watch Andy Murray and you think, oh, yeah, I can play tennis. And you go and book a court and you get out there and it's really scary. And that's what it's like when you think, oh, I'll write a book. It's not easy at all. Um, and I didn't tell anybody about it. And I just had it as my guilty little secret that I'd sit in my car in my lunch break writing this book about two little girls. Um, and I never thought it would ever come to anything. And the night I found out it had gone in the Sunday Times, I just sat up all night with my dog eating crisp sandwiches because I was just so bewildered that this amazing thing had happened to me that I just couldn't quite process it. Um, and the whole thing's been a whirlwind. And I didn't ever set out to do that. I set out to do medicine. That was a conscious decision that I wanted to go back into education because it was something that had always interested me because I love psychiatry. But the writing just happened. I just kind of fell through a door into writing a book and people liked it, which is amazing. And I'm very, very grateful that they love Grace and Tilly. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Joan. You're welcome. I'm very glad it made its way into the world. So am I. (laughs) Um, And you've been a pleasure to have on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That was Joe Cannon, the author of um, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, which is out in bookstores now. That was Joanna Cannon talking about her debut novel, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. And our theme today is Black Sheep, um, which is one of the themes of the novel. And it's also a very popular, enduring part of literature, um, outsiders who don't fit in. Why do you think it's so popular? I, I think it's because it creates, immediately creates narrative tension, right? You've got somebody who's in opposition to the status quo in one way or another. So you have this um, device that is kind of perfect for making a critique of anything that is the accepted norm, um, a figure who feels on the margins. But I also think because of that, actually, it appeals to everybody because I think it's part of human experience to at some point feel outside or separate from the mainstream. So even though the figure of the black sheep feels quite singular, um, and you know, is the underdog, I guess, or y- you think it would be the minority. But I actually think the reason it's so popular is because it speaks to something that is very basic about the human experience. Mm. And uh, if the novel is indeed a way of exercising empathy on the highest scale, which there 
people have argued about that. But this is the, the, the way of being empathetic is to get inside the mind of someone who doesn't quite fit in for whatever reason, um, who's pushed out to the margins, but who in, in that uh, marginality is actually representative of humanity. <laughs> Getting deep today. Um, and also I think the, the outsider can become a representation of things like existentialism, um, The Stranger by Camus, other things like that. So, so it's, it's a person and a figure that can take on many different guises. So let's, let's talk about specifics here. Um, <laughs> let's get down to business, girl. <laughs> when, you, when you thought about black sheep in literature, what came to mind? I, well, I immediately thought about the hunchback of Notre Dame, poor old Quasimodo, um, who, you know, is a black sheep in many ways. Firstly, obviously, because of his physical deformity, which is, you know, this is something that is a really important uh, frontier for culture these days. But it's always been, you know, the outcast people who were physically different, lepers, you know, th this kind of figure of the, yeah, the rejected other. Um, and, you know, this novel by Victor Hugo, obviously people have probably seen the Disney film, but do read the book because it's a, f it's a fabulous piece of literature and it's devastating. Poor old Quasimodo ends up dying for love by starvation at the graveside of Esmeralda. Um, but the thing that, that really fits with the theme in this is it's his enduring love, the enduring love of an outsider that transgresses social restrictions because he he's supposed to be the monster in the attic, but he comes down and he falls for this woman and it because he's on the outside, he's not restricted by social norms. He's not accepted either, but he he's able to cross boundaries that realistically, it, you know, in the time he shouldn't have been able to do. And love being this force that carries us over the boundaries of various different things mm. is quite a potent image. Um, but I also thought of Antigone, the Greek, the Greek play by Sophocles um, and also Euripides, because it's a narrative that is completely about this idea of being singular and different and being willing to die for your principles. Yeah. Um, well, and Oedipus as well was a, her father was an outsider. Right. Absolutely. Um, and and I love the thought of the black sheep in one guise being essentially a political insurgent, which is what An Antigone is. You know, she goes against the rule of law because she's governed by her own internal ethics um, and divine law, as what she refers to it as. But I think that that is a really um, interesting thought as well, that the thing that makes you an outsider can be an internal sense of justice that goes against what the, the status quo wants you to do. Mm. When you were talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I also was thinking about uh, Frankenstein and totally. Mary Shelley's novel, yeah. uh, which is a, a similar example of this idea of the noble savage, of someone who doesn't fit in because of the way they are and the way they look and, and physical deformity, but actually um, their heart is much purer than ours. Um, and, I, and I do wonder if, I'm trying to think of novels where the outsider is not ultimately the hero. I think there are very few um, because we, it's, it's our instinct to root for the underdog is too strong and to root for the outsider and to feel empathetic with their plight um, of, of exclusion. Yeah, I'm desperately trying to think of an example where that's not the case and I kind of can't. No. I can't. You know, one of the interesting ways into the theme for me as well was this um, this novel, this Balzac novel, so written in nineteenth uh, century, eighteen forty two, called La Habilleuse, which is translated as the Black Sheep, but the literal French actually literally means to muddy up the water, 
were to stir up the water to catch uh, fish. Um, but I, I love this idea of the black sheep being this disturbing force that disturbs order. Um, and I don't mean that necessarily with a negative connotation, but this idea that the presence of the black sheep throws a community into disarray because it does not obey. The black sheep does not obey the law. Um, this sense of agitation, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to mention also that black sheep in, in literature are often people who are marginalized just because of who they are and the way they look, something that's outside of their personality. So I'm thinking of... Um, you know, some of the best books have been written about, um, you know, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison or The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. That is all about racial prejudice. Racial, Rachel prejudice. <laughs> all <bitch>. those Rachels. <laughs> racial prejudice. <laughs> um, you know, Brokeback Mountain about sexuality, um, gender, had a gabbler, disability, The Shock of the Fall by Nathan Filer, who we had on the show. You know, the, 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 the outsider is a useful means of exploring the awful prejudices that we hold in society and humanizing the people who are dehumanized by our inequalities. Yeah, and actually, the, I mean, one of the strongest examples of the outsider is Jane Eyre, isn't it? Yeah, you that's know. my recommendation. Your fave. Oh, is it? God, sorry, jumping ahead. <laughs> shut up. I'll, I'll shut up, I'll shut up. Yeah, well, and also Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Yeah. That's that's another kind of strong, potent example, isn't it? Yeah. And you could, uh, I, I think maybe there's a distinction to be made, and I don't know if you feel this way, but between people who choose to be outsiders and people who are made to be outsiders. So what I was just talking about is, you know, somebody who is black and who is um, marginalized for that reason doesn't really have a choice. But Notes from Underground is interesting because in some sense, this man has chosen to, to go underground, to live an alternative life. Yeah, and that at the heart of that is this question of privilege, you know, the choice. Imagine having the structural, socio-political privilege to be able to choose to be an outsider when the real experience of so many is that it's not a choice. And like in, in Joe's novel, in The Truth About Goats and Sheep... The Trouble with goats and sheep. Oh, my God. I always get it confused with The Truth About Cats and Dogs, no, which okay. is a totally <laughs> different thing. The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. Um, and I love the title of her book because it really gets at the heart of this kind of discussion yeah and that know. of course is a reference to biblical sorting of the goats and the sheep yeah um, exactly but the black sheep the initial black sheep in her book it's not a choice at all um for him to be cast out in the way that he is but as the narrative unfolds obviously we discover that everybody has their their bl internal black sheep you know that the that, that the community moving and thinking as one is almost uh it's a misconception had from the perspective of the outsider when you feel against everything but the reality is we're not uh you know a amorphous mass like crowds groups society it's made up of individuals and if you can speak to the individuality of of people you can break down a lot of these prejudices you know and i think that's why the black sheep is such an interesting literary trope because the aim of some of these texts is to do exactly that is mm. to sh to shine a very uncompromising light on society's mores and um, the constructed acceptability of certain behaviors and go, wait a second, you know, this yeah. is not, don't be a sheep, think for yourself. Yeah, well, Terry Eagleton has a response to that. Um, I, I stumbled across an article he wrote in The Guardian, in, in or, or an essay, I suppose, in 2001 when I was doing research for the show. Um, 
And his argument, well, I never agree with Terry Eagleton, so <laughs> it's going to become <laughs> clear quite quickly why. Um, but he was arguing that outsiders have become the literary mainstream, and this is somehow problematic. So I'll, I'll read a little quote from that. These days, centrality is distinctly uncool. The center has been marginalized, and marginality, like Bohemian Manchester or Cornish fishing villages, you can see that this was written 15 years ago, is the place to be. With so many groups muscling in on them, from sexual and ethnic minorities to dog-on-a-rope anarchists, the margins have grown so crowded that there is now that there is now standing room only. Uh, what do you think of that? That makes me furious. <laughs> that makes me absolutely furious. Yeah. yeah. I found it pretty detestable, whiny, shockingly old-fashioned. Shockingly old-fashioned. That's it. But I, But is there something in his argument that, you know, celebrating the... M- the marginal is now more trendy um, and not necessarily that productive for creating great literature. I don't know. Can we entertain that? We c- it's an interesting question. I think that it you can definitely say that there's been a trend towards um, that centrality is uncool. I don't know. I'm having to think about that because it to me it seems like that's the voice of somebody who's not used, who's never been a black sheep, essentially. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's so part of the establishment. He's so mired in his own privilege that he c- he kind of, to group together sexual and ethnic minorities and dog on a rope anarchists. I mean, the hell? Yeah, I yeah, I, I probably disagree. I would say, the only thing I would say is is great literature can come from anyone. Um, and I don't, I don't mind if it's a white dude, if he's writing a beautiful story about the human experience. But the problem is that there are plenty of non-white dudes who have not had their voices heard. Yeah. And so maybe it makes sense to privilege the minority, at least for now, while we're pushing towards equality. Yeah. The re, a a rebalancing of things. Definitely. And also what you just said, the thing that's important there is, is the integrity of the project. If, if you are writing about the mainstream or you're writing about, the outsider, if you have integrity in your writing and the project and you're telling the truth and you're not using it as a device to crowbar yourself into the literary establishment, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Let's talk about our favorite black sheep. Um, Octavia's already given away mine. So do you want to start oh with yours? Oh, God, I'm sorry. No, you didn't, you didn't even really talk about it, so <laughs> it's fine. Okay, well, I'll go first um, with a classic of uh, mine. I think I've actually talked about this briefly on the show before. It's a, a book called Les Chants de Maldoror, or the Songs of Maldoror, or just Maldoror in the translation, by the Comte de Lotréamont, which was the pseudonym of a Uruguayan French writer called Isidore Ducasse. Um, and it's it's a poet- poetic novel, or you can look at it as a long prose poem. It's, uh, it's uh, not conventional narrative literature, basically. Um, it's a phenomenal text, though, and it was really, really influential for the Surrealists. One edition was even illustrated by Salvador Dali. Um, and at the heart of it, which speaks to the Surrealist project as well, is this figure who is completely amoral, um, so stepping outside of all of society's constructions. He's, he's essentially kind of pure evil. He loathes God. He loathes humanity. He's renounced conventional existence completely. Um, and the book actually opens with an address direct to the reader that warns of a wild and treacherous passage through the desolate swamps of these somber, poison-soaked pages, Ooh. which I am, you know, a fan of hyperbole, so I'm into it. Um, and he warns about the book's lethal fumes, which I also love this idea that, you know, books contain revolutionary transgressive ideas that can intoxicate you um and it's yeah it's just it's phenomenal it's very nihilistic it's 
you know, the, the Mulder Roar is essentially a satanic anti-hero, um, but it's very funny also. I find it very funny. And what it's, the critique of morality and social structures and the way that we unthinkingly, you know, become sheep um, is incredibly poignant and transcends the time when it was written is just as relevant now as it ever was. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a book that I go back to and it stays with me. I first read it when I was about 18. Um, so, you know, it stood the test mm. of a good, like, 11 years. Um, so, yeah, I'd recommend it very, very highly. But definitely read it with the light on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds fab. Can't wait to read it. Um, my recommendation, as mentioned, is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Um, I, this, I won't have, to, I won't go into the plot because I assume most people know what that is. But I, I instantly thought of this when I thought about black sheep. And, and Jane, by many standards is not much of a black sheep. I mean, she's from, she, she, she's quite privileged in many ways and, and she's not deformed or, um, it, you know, cast away from society by any means. But um, reading this book was so important to me as a teenager. And I think it's because it was the first time that I encountered a sort of fully realized, plain, weird, bullied woman who was so much more than her exterior appearance or her manner. Um, what, what was important about Jane was her consciousness and her realization of her consciousness. Um, and I, I loved that she was the heroine of this book. I think she's one of the most interesting, complex heroines ever written. Um, and there's a reason why she remains so enduring um, even today. And... Um, and I like that she deserved happiness as well, even if it's a sort of messed up happiness with a blind man who turned his other wife mad. Do you know the best description of Mr. Rochester I've ever heard was in Chris Krause's book, I Love Dick, where she describes him as a mean horse-faced junkie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I love it. It's so true, isn't it's it? so true. But yeah, Jane Eyre, Black yeah, Sheep. you're absolutely right. Forever. She's, she's a banging Black Sheep, that lady. This is Literary Friction, and Octavia and I are now back with Joe Cannon to give our book recommendations. So, Octavia, can you start us off, please? I sure can. So, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll know that I went to my uncle's farm in Somerset over Easter and um, had the joyful task of raiding all the dusty old bookshelves and finding all kinds of brilliant things. Um, and they're heaving with more books that I want to read, that I can really express here, especially a 1970s edition of The Complete Handy Woman, which is, seems quite relevant for our chat today. Um, but the one that, uh, that really got me and that I took away with me um, is a London Panther edition of Baudelaire's uh, Intimate Journals. And yeah, I mean, it's hilarious. I, he's a poet who I've always loved, but it's, um, it's just so funny to read his, to read his personal kind of thoughts uh, and, and obviously incredibly exposing and it's wonderful to get in behind the, the personality. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they're full of spleen and frustration and they're rude and cross and angry and critical and poetic um, and very funny, which I'm sure was not his intention. Um, and I just wanted to read you the translator's notes because I think it's perfect. Describe him as an ex-dandy who dressed like a condemned convict a philosopher of love who was ill at ease with women, a revolutionary who despised the masses, an aristocrat who loathed the ruling classes, a minority of one. <laughs> and it's true. Um, 
he tells us that art and love are both prostitution and he muses on the terrible truth that in love, so often one person loves a little bit more than the other. Um, and he writes brilliantly about procrastination. And it's, it's kind of a revelation to me that this man was, um, that, it, that, that this personal writing kind of ever existed because his poetry is so constructed. So yeah, I would say everyone try and find a dusty old copy. <laughs> That's actually really heartening to hear because my only experience with Baudelaire was like trying to translate his poetry from French and failing miserably. So maybe I'll pick that up. Might restore my faith in him. Joe, do you want to give your recommendation? Yeah. Well, one of the really lovely things about being an author is people send you proofs. And I get sent a lot of proofs. They're actually now reaching the ceiling in my bathroom. Um, so I've got a lot of wonderful books to get through. But one of the books I was sent recently is a book which is out um, this month, April, and it's by an author called Rob Ewing. It's a debut, and it's called The Last of Us. And it is also published by Borough Press, but this is not the reason I'm recommending it, because I will shout about any publishing house if I feel they've, they've um, published a brilliant book. But this does happen to be published by HarperCollins. Um, and the author, Rob, is also a medic, and he is writing this story and it's about um, some children who are left on an island in Scotland. It's a kind of a dystopian, which is not a genre that I would normally read, um, but it's kind of an end of the world type feel to it. So there has been um, a plague a disease that's wiped out the adult population of, we think the country, the world, we're not sure. Um, and these kids are left on this island in Scotland with no adults, with no supervision. Um, and there's kind of f about five of them and they have to fend for themselves and it's a bit kind of Lord of the Flies but in a modern setting and obviously written very differently and it really struck me this story um, about what I would do if I were left at the end of the world and I was thinking if I was on that island how would I save all the dogs was my first thought <laughs> um, so I spent a long time thinking about how I'd save all the dogs this is how kind of engrossed I got in this story um, and it's just so powerful and so beautifully written and it's all about the strength and the fragility of human nature um, and the, the writing is absolutely brilliant and so much so that I read it in a day and halfway through reading this book I went to make a drink and I looked out the kitchen window and there was an adult walking past the house and I actually jumped backwards because I'd been in this story where all the adults had died and I looked up and saw this adult and I thought, oh my god there's somebody walking past the house and that's how involved I was in this story it really took me over um so I would definitely recommend that it's like I say it's out this month uh, from HarperCollins and it's called The Last of Us and it's rather beautiful that sounds wonderful mm. I love that you became a child in your mind too yes I did I did and I just I think I mean I've not read many kind of end of the world books and I try to read outside of the usual genres but I just haven't read many of them um, but this one was kindly sent to me and it just from the minute I started reading because you know don't you from the first page that you're going to love something and I, it was like a trapdoor story I call them trapdoor stories that you just fall through and you're there and you're just taken away um, and it's stunning yeah but I was a child while I was reading it yeah I felt that way about Station Eleven which was another yeah. um, sort of post-apocalyptic yeah. book that came out recently I think yeah. there's something if if you get it right and if you're a good writer mm. that kind of world is so entrancing well isn't it, it is I read Station Eleven it was wonderful yeah. um, and you do start thinking what would I do what would I do and I think then you know that the story's really got you when you start imagining 
kind of how you would cope with that situation. It was it was incredible. Yeah. I wonder how Grace and Tilly would cope with that situation. As long as they got Angel Delight, I think Grace would be absolutely fine. To be fair. <laughs> Angel Delight is actually a really good end of the world food. Well, it is actually. Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's all dehydrated. Yeah. God knows what's in it. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, my recommendation is inspired by two things this week. Um, the first is that I've been doing a ton of reading for work manuscripts. So I haven't actually been able to read many published novels. So I'm uh, grasping for straws a bit this month. Apologies to everyone. Um, and the second is that rather shockingly, I got a chain email last week. I don't know if either of you have got a chain email, but I basically thought these died out in the 90s. And it was like a, it was like a highbrow publishing chain email <laughs> about poetry, but obviously written by someone who sort of wasn't a teenager in the 90s and didn't get like, you will die if you don't pass this on within 48 <laughs> hours or like write a nice thing about somebody else on the chain. But it was a, it was a poetry email and I immediately scoffed at it but then actually I thought okay well what poem would I want to pass on to someone and what's my favorite poetry and this brought me back to um, Frank O'Hara's very wonderful poem having a coke with you and also his collection um, meditations in an emergency from 1957 which actually doesn't include that poem but is a really wonderful collection um, Frank O'Hara was he was a gay poet and he was also the curator at the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, and uh, I just, I forgot how much I loved his poetry. It's, it always seems to be in motion somehow. It's ecstatic, it's emotional, it's funny. It's, um, it, it's sort of pathetic. It, it veers between pop cultural references and high art. Um, and it's sort of filled with the people in his life and the things in his life and, and the city and the streets. And it's just, it's such a joy to read. And um, I think having a Coke with you especially might be the best love poem ever written. Um, it's partially because it includes the line, partly because of my love for you, partly because of your love for yogurt, which I just love. It just makes me so happy every time I read that. So Frank O'Hara is, is my recommendation this week. Um, and chain emails aren't just scum of the earth sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> they lead us to good things. I'm a really horrible curmudgeon about chain emails. I never pass on the chain. I find them like deathly irritating. But that sounds like a beautiful thing that it brought you back to poetry. That's mm. great. Okay. Well, thanks so much, everyone. That is it for today's show. Thanks to Joanna Cannon, whose novel The Trouble with Goats and Sheep is in bookshops now, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, um, and also on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, please leave comments, give us a rating. It really helps. We love to hear from you. Yes, we do. I'm Carrie Blitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>